I want us to think today about holiness and purity and pursuing purity. You know, God wants us not only to, to live holy lives and to be pure, righteous, all those things that Jimmy was singing about, but he wants us to pursue those things in our lives. And if I were to ask you today, do you consider yourself a holy person? You know, how would you answer that question? I think if you ask me, John, do you consider yourself to be a holy person? I think my honest answer to that question would be nowhere near as holy as I ought to be. That would be the honest answer I would give to that question. You know, we can always find somebody, and I think this is what we do sometimes. We, in our minds, we look at another person. Maybe we see something on the news or on TV, some people doing really bad stuff, and, and we say to ourselves, well, compared to him, I'm really not that bad. I mean, you know, you can always find somebody a little worse than you are and make you feel better about yourself. I, I heard about these two brothers who lived in a small East Texas town, and they were scoundrels, to say the least. They were thieves. They were liars. They were drunkards. They had foul language. I mean, they, they were just known within the town as being bad news. They never went to church, had nothing to do with God. They were bad news. And one of the brothers died. So the other brother went to the Baptist church to meet the preacher. He had never been in the church and didn't know the preacher, but he said, preacher, my brother has died and we don't go to church. Could you do the funeral for him? And so the preacher said, yes, I can. I'll be glad to help your family and do the funeral. And so the uh, brother said, well, pastor, I have a strange request. He said, I'll give you $10,000 if you'll call my brother a saint during the funeral. $10,000. Pastor said, deal. I'll do it, $10,000. He gave him $10,000. And so at the funeral, and before the funeral got out, the word had gotten out. The brother had told everybody, the pastor's going to call my, my brother a saint at the funeral. Nobody thought it because this pastor was an honest man. He thought, there's no way that guy's going to say that. So everybody, you couldn't even get in the church that day for the funeral. And the pastor got up to speak, and he said, today, we have come to remember the life of one of the most wicked, vile, dishonest, good-for-nothing men I've ever known in all my life. But compared to his brother here, he was a saint. <laughs> and so, you know, you can always find somebody who's worse than you are to make you feel better about yourself. But think about this. The standard that God uses to measure us, God doesn't measure us by another person. God's, that's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. God measures us by his standard, which is perfect. And so if I compare myself to somebody like I was describing, I might feel good about myself. I say, well, I'm not as bad as him. But if I compare myself to the standard that is laid forth for us in the Bible, perfection, and then certainly if I look at the life of Jesus and I compare myself to him, his purity, the way he acted all the time, never sinned, not even in his mind. He never did anything wrong. I have to say, you know what? Not only am I not as holy as I ought to be compared to Jesus, I'm just not holy at all. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. He said to all those people listening, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure those people heard that and thought, if, unless it exceeds their righteousness, they're the most righteous people. They're, they're the most serious about God, the most dedicated. And, and you're telling me I've got to be more righteous than they are? And Jesus was saying, yes, because the standard is not their righteousness. The standard is perfection. 
And these scribes and Pharisees that y'all think are so holy and everything, if you only knew what was in their heart, if you only knew what was in their mind, if you only knew some of the things that they wish they could do, but they know they can't do it because it would hurt their reputation, and so they have coveting in their heart and envy in their heart and lust in their heart and jealousy in their heart, they're not as righteous as you think they are. And I'm telling you, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness... You're not going to heaven. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, you need a new kind of righteousness, and that is the righteousness of God in me, Jesus was saying. You see, our righteousness, here's the, here's the Bible in a nutshell. It's so simple, but it took me really a long time to, for this to really sink in my own heart. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you believe that, say Amen. <laughs> We have. So none of us is righteous. The Bible says our righteousnesses in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 are like filthy rags to God. In other words, the best things we do in the eyes of God are like filthy rags. Psalm 16, 2, the psalmist said, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And so what you had in Bible times, both Old and New Testament, you had people trying to make themselves right in the eyes of God. And they were offering up sacrifices and they were making rules. They were trying to go by the rules God had put in the Bible. They were making up new rules that God didn't even give them. And they were saying, if we do all these things just right, if we cross every T and dot every I, then at the end of life, God's going to say, you were righteous and you can come to heaven. And that was what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were trying to create their own righteousness. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 10 when he talks about those who are trying to make themselves righteous by, ha- by keeping the law and by doing good things. But God said, all of your righteousness is nothing. It's no good in my eyes. It is unacceptable. You'll never measure up to the standard of perfection. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He lived here for 33 years. He never sinned. In thought, word, or deed, he never sinned. And that's why Jesus is called the righteousness of God. That's why John the Baptist, when Jesus was walking by one day, said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's righteousness. And the only righteousness that there is is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the message of the New Testament, the gospel in a nutshell is this. If you place your faith in Jesus... You say to God, God, I don't have any real righteousness of my own. Oh, I can compare myself to somebody else and I think I'm not so bad. But when I compare myself to your standard of perfection, when I compare myself to Jesus, I say, I don't come anywhere near to that. And so God says, you could never make yourself right or righteous in my eyes. So I'm sending my son, Jesus. He is the righteousness of God. And if you will place your faith in him, in other words, you say to God, God, I want Jesus's righteousness to be my righteousness. In other words, I want to put my faith in him so that one day when I stand before you, you don't judge me by my own righteousness or lack thereof, but you judge me by his righteousness. In other words, I get credit for his righteousness. So here's the gospel. We place our faith in Jesus and Jesus places his righteousness on us So that one day when we stand before God, and even today as we live before God, God doesn't see all of our sins and 
imperfections and unrighteousnesses. No, God sees that we are covered and clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61.10 talks about the robe of righteousness, and that is the righteousness of Christ. And so we are in him. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon last night, and I thought, I really want to drive this point home today. The, the first thing I want to say is, In order for us to receive his righteousness, in order for us to really be right, we have to recognize that we have really been wrong. So if you have your Bibles, open them today to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. This is one of the classic passages of Scripture in all of the Old Testament, but really all the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. Isaiah is talking here. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And so Isaiah, at a time of national crisis, the king, Uzziah had been the king for many, many years, and now he is gone. And so the the nation is trying to figure out what's going to happen. Well, in this time, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is seeing a picture into heaven, an image of God, a vision of God. Above it, above this throne stood seraphim, This is a type of angel. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And so these angels are flying around the throne of God. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in verse 4, it says, The post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah is seeing into heaven, and he's seeing the holiness of God, and he's looking at these angels flying around the throne, and God is so holy that with some of their wings, they have to cover their own eyes. And their song is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And, and so Isaiah is seeing this. But look what happens in verse 5. So I said, Woe is me. For I am undone, or I am destroyed or cut off, because I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah, when he saw the holiness of God, he began to think about his own sins. And evidently here, he's thinking about some of the things he had said that he never should have said. We don't know what that was. Maybe he had used a bad word or maybe he had been rude or, or, or maybe he had gossiped or maybe he had lied or he had done something with his lips, something with his mouth, something with his words. And when he saw the holiness of God, that's the sin that he became convicted of. He said, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And so upon Isaiah's confession of his sin, one of these angels went to the altar there in heaven and took a coal that had been heated up with fire, obviously. And uh, he took that with the tongs and he came down to earth. And in verse seven, it says, and he, Isaiah said, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And so we could say in this moment, 
Now, Isaiah is living in Old Testament times, but still, in this moment, Isaiah, because of what Jesus one day would do on the cross, received the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. We could say it this way. At this moment, Isaiah was saved. You could say it that way. At this moment, he now is clothed in the righteousness of God. He is covered now in the garments of salvation. But none of that happened until he recognized his own holiness. Did you know a person can't be saved until they admit that they need to be saved? We saw in our 11 o'clock service on Sunday, sometimes it's the first one where there's more decisions, sometimes it's the second one, sometimes it's the same. But this last Sunday in the 11 o'clock, there were 12 people who got saved. It was a beautiful thing. All 12 people stood up that they got saved. Now, what did all 12 of those people have to admit before they got saved? They had to admit that they needed to be saved. Whether it was unclean lips, unclean thoughts, unclean life, or something, they had to admit that they had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like Isaiah did. Now, after we get saved, are you still listening? Say amen, because that's a lot that I... After we get saved, see, at the moment of salvation, we're made right in the eyes of God. We are righteous in God's eyes the moment... We confess our sins and place our faith in Christ to forgive us our sins. That is when the great exchange takes place. He takes our sins, we get his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. It's the best deal in the world. He takes our sins and we're covered and clothed in his righteousness. Theologians would say in that moment, we are positionally righteous. We're positionally righteous. In the eyes of God, we're righteous, but... In order for us to be practically righteous, in order for us day in and day out to live a life of holiness and purity before the Lord, there are some things that we have to do. Our salvation is not on the line at this point. We're already saved. But our life, our witness, our happiness, our joy is on the line. Now, if you'll turn in the New Testament book to Hebrews chapter number 12. And I'm not sure if you have the page number of that or not. And I'm using a different Bible and failed to bring that page number out here. But Hebrews chapter 12. Let me give you just a moment to find that. And I want to show you one verse in chapter 12 and one verse in chapter 13. But in chapter 12, find verse 14. Because the writer to Hebrews is giving some very specific instructions to Christians. These people have already been saved. And so he's not telling them how to be saved. He's telling them how to live the Christian life. And in verse 14, he says, pursue peace with all people. That's important. But then what, notice what it says, and holiness. Or it could say, and purity, without which no one will see the Lord. And so we're commanded here to pursue holiness. It's something, we, there's a sense in which we've already received it in the eyes of God. We're positionally right. But After that happens, we have to pursue practical holiness and we have to pursue a holy life. Now, look in chapter 13. I just read this verse yesterday in my own Bible reading. And last night I thought, well, this would be a good one to show. Look in chapter 13 and verse 18. The writer says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience. So very important to have a clear conscience. In all things, desiring to live honorably. What is holiness? I'm talking now about practical holiness, practical righteousness, practical purity. What what is this? It's just living your life. It's me living my life the right way. And the writer here to Hebrews says, desiring to live honorably. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. 
because we're not. We're going to still sin. But it means in our hearts there is a desire to live before the Lord a life of holiness, a life of purity, and a life of doing what's right. Many times we fail. Many times we fall. And we have to claim 1 John 1, 9, that if we'll confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet even then, even when we actually sin and mess up, we feel badly about it. Why? Because there's a desire in our heart not to sin. There's a desire in our heart to live honorably before the Lord. I wrote down some, some benefits of, of purity and why we should pursue purity. One of the things in your life, we pursue good health, hopefully. We pursue, you know, good relationships with people. We pursue uh, financial security. We, we pursue education. We try to learn and be informed. We have a lot of things in life. We pursue our interest. If you're a sports fan, like I am, you pursue your sports, in, your teams and your favorite players and you keep up with them. One of the things the Bible says we should pursue is holiness and purity. We should pursue it. But think about this. My dad and I were talking on the phone about this the other day. The fact that we're told to pursue it implies that we might never, that we probably never will fully achieve it. We're pursuing it. We're going after it. But you know, we're human and we still messed up, but we're still going after it. Listen to some of the benefits. If we pursue holiness and try to live a holy life, we'll have a clear conscience. What, what happens to us? What's the first thing that happens when, to a Christian when we sin? Well, I can tell you the first thing that happens to me, I feel bad about it. I feel guilty about it. I have a guilty conscience. And that's, a, that's bad. That's miserable to have, a, uh, to have a guilty conscience. And so, but if we, and we ask God to forgive us, he cleanses us and he helps our conscience get clean. But the point is, if we, if we just wouldn't sin at all, we wouldn't have a guilty conscience. We would have a clear conscience. And so that's what, that's what we should pursue. Another thing that happens when we pursue holiness, we have an open line of communication with God. What is one of the things that happens when we sin? When we sin, it blocks the line of fellowship between us and God. We don't lose our salvation. Some people think that you can lose your salvation. Friend, that's not right, and that's not Bible theology. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have, what's the next two words? <laughs> everlasting life. Think about that. How can you lose everlasting life? I mean, there are entire denominations that teach you can lose your salvation. If you can lose everlasting life, then it wasn't everlasting. <laughs> I mean, by definition, if you receive eternal life, that is the gift of eternal life, and then you lost it, well, whatever it was, it wasn't eternal. It was short term, right? And one of the reasons some of these denominations teach that you can lose your salvation is because they look at some of us in churches and denominations that don't believe that, we believe once saved, always saved. That's what we believe the Bible teaches, and it is what the Bible teaches. But some people have abused that theology, and their attitude is, I'm saved. It's everlasting life. I can't lose it. Doesn't matter what I do. I can, let me tell you something. Anybody that has that attitude has probably never even been saved. Because one of the ways I know I'm saved is not that I never sin. 
Because I do sin more often than I ought to sin. But one of the ways I know I'm saved is that when I save, when I sin, I feel guilty and rotten and shameful. And that's a good thing because that's the Holy Spirit convicting me from the inside. So you have these two extremes. One people say, well, you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. Some people say, well, if you're saved, doesn't matter how you live. You can do whatever you want to do. That's wrong too. If you're saved, you will have with that salvation a desire to live a life before the Lord of purity and holiness and godliness. Yes, we sin, but we still have that desire. And as we pursue holiness, we have a clear conscience and we have an open line of communication with God. And not only that, we'll be able to uh, see God in our circumstances. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You know, as I think about what practical steps can we take to pursue holiness, I I would say this, we do have to watch what we watch. The psalmist said, I will set no wicked thing before my eye. We have to be very careful. We have to be careful what we think about. And you know, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Everything you do flows from your heart. And it's talking about your mind, what you think. And we just have to, you know, we have to, to watch where we go and try to go in the right place. This past October, I preached a different sermon, but I nonetheless preached a sermon on purity to the church on a Sunday morning. And at the end of the sermon, I, I, uh, I was talking about watching what you watch. And, and, and as I was preparing that sermon, and it hit me again last night when I was finishing this sermon, I thought, do you remember that song we sang when we were kids? This, and I want us to end today by, by doing this. Do you remember that song we sang when we were kids? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. You remember that? And then, oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And then, oh, be careful, little mind, what you think. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go. If we sing all those verses, you'll be here all day, so we can't sing them all. But let's sing a few of them. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Now, before we do the next one, think about Isaiah. He has this vision of God, the holiness of God, the angels around the throne, smoke ascending. And Isaiah said, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've lied, maybe. I've used profanity. I've gossiped. I've slandered. I've hurt somebody's reputation. And I need to be forgiven. So now we sing. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little mouth, what you say. Let's do one more. You know, I think about our feet. Our feet take us everywhere we go. They took us in the Grace Center today. They brought us to this lunch. They'll take us wherever we're going this afternoon. We just want to make sure that our feet are taking us to the right place. Let's sing that. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. Amen.